Remaining standing, would you join me in prayer? Father, we give you thanks that you have gathered us here this morning from all different backgrounds, from all different places in life and seasons. Lord, I thank you that as we journey together this morning through these prayers and these songs, through uh, the, the reading of your scripture, through being welcomed to your table, Lord, I pray that your rule and your reign, King Jesus, would impress upon our hearts. We would know that you are, in fact, ruling the universe, the entire cosmos, in this very moment. And may that awaken our hearts, give us hope, give us faith, give us courage to suffer whatever it is that we may be walking through right now. We ask now that as we open up your scriptures that we would see a glimpse of Jesus Christ. And then in seeing him, we may be transformed to become more like him from one degree of glory to the next. In his name, amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Patrick Schlabs. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new with us, we're especially glad that you're here on this special Sunday, this last day of uh, the church calendar before we begin our new year next week with the first Sunday of Advent. And as we begin, I want you to picture this scene in your mind, okay? It's difficult maybe for some of us to imagine, but I want you to picture on this cold day in Charleston that you have spent the past week enjoying pristine white sand beaches. I want you to imagine yourself feasting on incredible fresh food, fresh fish, fruits, vegetables, that you have spent your time in stunning hikes on the tops of mountains or even on volcanoes, that some of you who are more athletically inclined have spent the entire week Surfing. Yes, of course, you are on vacation or you have been on vacation in Hawaii. When this morning you are suddenly awoken by a text alert that says this, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Other than ruining your vacation, how do you respond to that? What do you do? Do you panic? Do you weep? Do you begin running around trying to find shelter as if that would help at all in the cause of nuclear war? Now, of course, for us, it's a, it's a rhetorical exercise, right? But for many on the morning of January 13th, 2018, it was not. It was the real thing. That was the text alert they got. I actually know one person who was vacationing with his family in this time, and he ended up writing about it and talking about the experience, the level of panic and fear that he felt on this very moment. And so it was for 38 minutes between the first alert that came into everybody's phone because of a simple mistake from some kind of low-rung employee, the entire, uh, the entire state of Hawaii was in utter panic. For 38 minutes, it, was, it took 38 minutes for the all clear sign. There's the, a the second alert that said, hey, everything's okay for it to come out. Thank goodness, of course, it was a false alarm. But this person who wrote about his experience talked about the, the helplessness that he felt, the powerlessness to, 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 to be considering facing his own demise, the loss of life of him and his family. In those 38 minutes, if we had experienced that, I'm sure that we would have experienced something very similar, a sense of powerlessness, sense of our inability and our frailty in the midst of this world, this unpredictable world that so often feels as though we have under control. And it is in these moments of panic and powerlessness that a certain clarity arrives, 
a clarity for what matters most, a clarity for where, in fact, our hope is found. We see in these times that our security is an illusion, it's frail, it's fleeting. Now, of course, we won't always face those kind of threats, right? Most of us will not get the alert that a nuclear missile is inbound, but I guarantee you that at some point in your life, if you have not experienced it yet, you will experience a time of this level of powerlessness. Whether it is something on a national scale like that, where our nation is under attack, I mean, I think probably the most significant moment that I have experienced in my lifetime is, is the September 11th attacks. I was a uh, senior in high school, just started my senior year of high school. And in that moment, I feel like as a nation, we experience that clarity of powerlessness, that panic of, of knowing that we're not in control, that we have no idea what comes next. Some of you live through Hurricane Hugo here, this massive regional disaster that devastated our region. Felt powerlessness in that moment. But if it's not even at that scale, or not on those big scales, we will all encounter some similar moment as individuals when chaos breaks in and it feels like our world is coming apart. It feels like the rug is pulled out from under us. Whether it's a devastating diagnosis, whether it's a job that we have spent our entire career working towards that doesn't come through or we lose it altogether, whether it's a bad investment that we make and all of the hope of our financial security is wiped away in a moment. Somehow, some way, chaos and crisis will come to us. And in that moment, where do we turn? What do we do? Do we panic? Do we fear? Do we resign ourselves to our fate? And then after we encounter those moments, whenever it feels as though God was far off and God was allowed these things to happen, do we lean into anger or bitterness, cynicism or withdrawal. That, of course, is our question this morning. How is it that we, as the people of God, respond to moments of chaos and moments of crisis in our life? And so I invite you to turn with me in your pew Bibles to our psalm. It's not often that we hear a psalm preached on Christ the King Sunday especially. We did hear one last week, which is fantastic. Reverend Aaron Clifford. This psalm is a national psalm. It has um, a lot of corporate communal language in it. And there's a sense that this is after the crisis has been averted, after they've made it through to the other side. It's a thanksgiving of victory. And of course, many people have found significant hope in times of crisis in the psalms, right? I know that on some of my darkest days, I've opened up my Bible and have turned to one of these songs that psalms, psalms that... Um, expresses the full spectrum of human emotion, right? So oftentimes the psalmist is writing from a place of deep distress and they're praying and they're crying out to God. And so it is that through the psalms, we acquire this language, this language of prayer. It forms us, knows us, teaches us how to respond in these difficult times. This is a favorite psalm of many. In fact, it was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. He quoted it and read it often. It was the inspiration for his very famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. He was reading this and wrote that tune based on it. And you'll notice if you look on, on your pew Bibles, at the bottom right corner, after the text, we didn't read it in our, in our bulletin, but there's a word, that, uh, Selah. And you've probably seen that in the Psalms. And if you turn the page, you'll see it a couple more times. Selah, Selah, there are three of them in there. And the funny thing about that word is that we don't really know what it means. We're not sure if it's a musical term, we're not sure if it's a liturgical term, or something else. 
something like theological. But we do know, most scholars agree that there's some kind of pause that happens there. It's a break. It's a place to stop and rest. And that is very convenient for me because there are three of them and I love preaching three-point sermons. So it worked out really well. We've got three little subsets in there. So we're going to use those as our pauses. And so let's begin. Let's look at this together. What does this psalm teach us about being people of hope and faith in the midst of difficulty? Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The vision here that the psalmist is depicting is one of chaos. Mountains falling into the sea. But I think it's worth noting that he doesn't begin there. The psalmist doesn't begin with the chaos. He begins with the God who is strong and who is powerful and who is present in the midst of this chaos. It begins with God who is a refuge and a strength, a very present help, it says. It starts with a confident assertion that God is powerful and God is present. God is strong and God is near to his people, come what may. The description here sounds like a natural disaster, right? Or it sounds like maybe uh, the kind of uh, National Geographic or Discovery Channel videos that you see of volcanic eruptions. I remember being so terrified of volcanoes whenever I was a kid. My parents had to tell me again and again and again that there were no volcanoes that would reach the panhandle of Texas. So I didn't really believe them. But I was like the psalmist. It was the, big, it was the picture of terror, right? Because you have like lava and magma exploding and rocks flying. And then when you see the, the volcanoes that are by the ocean, right? The, the lava just travels down and like it ends up in the, in the ocean. And it's just this steaming, like bubbling mess. Nature at its most magnificent and violent. And I think that's what the picture that we have there, it's, it's the chaos, it's the uncertainty of this world, this big, mad world. The Jewish people believed in their cosmology that the mountains were the pillars of the earth. Just like these pillars hold up this space, they viewed the mountains as the, the foundations of this, this world. And so for the mountains to be moved and to collapse and to fall into the sea, which for them the sea was, was terrifying, it was a place of chaos, utter chaos. That's what you get in Genesis 1 when the Spirit of God is hovering over these chaotic waters. It's uncertainty, right? They didn't want to have anything to do with that. Again, I grew up in the Panhandle of Texas. I was as far from water as you can possibly be. I was also very afraid of water. Any water scared me. So I sympathize with this psalmist here who says, look, even if the mountains, the foundations of the earth are thrown into chaos, if they crumble down, then God is with us, even still. God is powerful and present in that moment. And he finds hope through that. He says, therefore, we will not fear even though all of this stuff happens because God is with us. Now, of course, we are very modern people, right? We're very smart. We believe in science, things like that. We're not afraid of the world being destroyed in that particular way. That's not exactly what chaos looks like for us. But we are afraid, right? We are afraid of the unknown. And, and maybe because of all the things we do know about the way the world works, we might even be more afraid. We recognize how, how fragile this world is, how fragile uh, uh, creation is, that at, at a moment we could experience something like a hurricane or like a tsunami, things that would bring utter devastation to us. Robert Alter, who is a, an Old Testament, um, he, he has a translation of the, of the Hebrew Bible that is incredible. It just came out. I commend it to you. But his word that he says for the mountains moving into the sea is collapse. 
And I think if we were to summarize our, our fears in this day, it is fear of collapse, right? Fear of the collapse of our governing institutions. Maybe more so, fear of collapse of our financial institutions, right? Every time we have some kind of national or global disaster, that's what happens, right? The first thing that's affected is the markets. We're terrified of the collapse of these things. We're terrified of of the unknown. We're terrified of all the possibilities, all the things in our own lives that could go wrong. And this, of course, can be crippling. I know many people that I talk to in this church and outside of this church are dealing with different various levels of anxiety. Some of you know this, most of you know this, but my family and I walked through a, a, a significant episode of anxiety at one point this past year, about a year ago. Uh, we were in the midst of absolute crippling anxiety that my wife was walking through. And all of that is um, very valid and, and it's, it's very understandable. But so, many, so much of what we walk through and we are all walking through is this fear of possibilities, Right? Fear of what could go wrong. Everything that we look, everywhere we look, things are on the brink of collapse. What might happen? And so it is the psalmist reminds us this morning, and this is the word to us, is that God is powerful, not only powerful enough to be in control of this chaos, but he's also present with us. He's near to us. He doesn't stand far off. So take heart. Take courage. Do not fear. God is with you in the midst of that. Verse 4. On the next page, in your pew Bibles. There's a river whose, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This next scene that we have here is less about possibility and more about reality. The psalmist now looks at a very particular type of threat, and that is one of siege. And scholars have speculated that this psalm is written in the aftermath of um, what happens in 2 Kings to King Hezekiah. 2 Kings 19 is where this is found if you want to look it up later. But it's when the the Assyrians, this mighty power, comes to destroy Jerusalem. They're they're, they're under siege. They're surrounding them. And at one point, we hear the number 185,000. They have 185,000 troops that are surrounding the city. And of course, in this time, a siege could be devastating, right? Absolutely devastating. Because they would cut off supplies, and it was like a slow death, a slow bleed. Not enough food, not enough water. And they would starve. And yet, the picture that the psalmist paints is not one of, of, of starvation, right? It's one of plenty. He talks about this stream of, of, of water, this river whose streams make glad the city of God. Even in the midst of an assault, From the outside, there is gladness because this stream, God is within his people like a stream. And Pete has just returned from Jerusalem. Um, I've been there as well. Is there a river in Jerusalem? There's no river in Jerusalem. But there's actually a stream under it. It's called the stream uh, of Hezekiah. It was built during this time. Did you guys walk through the tunnel? Yeah, so it's very cool. You can go walk through this stream. And that was what gave the Jewish people hope in the midst of this because they knew that their water supply would not be cut off. And the psalmist is saying that this is what your God is like. Your God is not just far off, but he's near. He's, he's within you like a stream to bring comfort in the midst of whatever it is that you are encountering. Comfort and peace. God is in the midst of his people. And they will not be moved. It says the same word happens three times in this passage when it says the mountains will be moved into the heart of the sea. And then it talks about, um, sorry, 
It talks about the, the kingdoms, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, that word. And then it says that God is in the midst of them. They will not be moved. Used three times. And it says, though the mountains be moved and though the kingdoms be moved, God's people are stable. They will not be moved. They will be secure. They will rest confident knowing that God is with them. And it says that God will help them when the morning comes. The image here is like at the very last moment, in the darkest hour, God comes through. Think about those of you who have read or seen the films for Lord of the Rings. Think about the Battle of Helm's Deep, right? All hope is lost. They've, they're overrun. And then at the dawn of the morning, we see who? Gandalf, right? At the top of the hill, swoop down and bring victory with him. That's the image here. God is helping his people in the darkest hour. He's there with them. He's near with them. Unless we think that this God is not strong enough to defeat whatever it is that God's people are encountering. The, the phrase that happens twice here, this refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us. Lord of hosts is God's specific name. Yahweh is Lord. And host is generally translated as armies. What he's saying here is that the God of the armies of heaven is with us. He's not off far away. He's with us. So there's no match. Whatever chaos we encounter, whatever crises we may walk through, the God of armies is strong and he's present with his people. Unless we think that he is just this exalted God on high, he's also the God of Jacob who's our fortress. God of Jacob is, is relational language. This is the God who has made a covenant with us, who has come near. He's committed himself and promised his everlasting faithfulness. He's near in the midst of chaos, in the midst of crisis. He's strong and near. A couple years ago, I guess it's been four years ago now, I was in seminary and I was down in Jacksonville for a weekend class and I was uh, watching the news because I knew that there was a serious rainstorm happening in Charleston. And I'm on the Weather Channel on one, on one browser window and then I think I was on CNN and it just looked terrible, right? They started talking about thousand year flood, like this was unprecedented. And my wife and two children were living down on George Street, not far from here. And I'm messaging Meg saying, hey, are you watching this? Like this looks like Charleston is about to, about to sink. Like it's devastation. And there's, you know, all these weather people are on there and they're being swept away, all this chaos. And she, she keeps like blowing me off. She's like, oh yeah, no, we're fine. We're good. And, I, and then, so I would click over back to the news and I'm like, this is insane. Are you sure everything's good? And then she's like, no, we're good. And she literally sends me a picture in the midst of the thousand year flood of my kids in our backyard, like literally playing in the rain. Like they're running around in it. I'm like, what are you doing? Our children are going to be swept away. In the midst of this tumultuous moment, they are dancing and playing and having fun. That's kind of the image that we have here. That come what may, this psalmist says that God is a refuge for us. Therefore, we can not just, not, just uh, not fear, but we can actually rejoice. We can be glad at the comfort of our God. He's with us. He's present. And now some of you, again, I'm, I know people are walking through difficult times. I, I spend time with many of you, and I know that life is so painful and so difficult. And you may say that this feels so distant to me. This was written thousands of years ago. This is rooted in a very particular expression of God at a particular time and place. It doesn't feel true to me. It doesn't feel like God is actually a refuge. It doesn't feel like God is actually a fortress that is near in this moment. How can I know that God is a refuge and a strength, a very present help and comfort? And I want to remind you this morning that Christian hope is not rooted 
simply in history. It is. Historical claims absolutely matter, but it's not rooted exclusively in these expressions of God defeating his people from battle, nor is it rooted in the hope that one day all chaos and all crisis will be over, that everything will be good. It's rooted in the fact that we have a God, all-powerful, the king of the universe, who enters into the chaos with us. That is our story. That is what we see in the gospel. Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, folds himself into human flesh. He enters into frailty. He enters into feebleness. He suffers with us. He suffers for us. Upon the cross, we see the true expression of his power and of his authority in humility, in suffering, in death. On this Christ the King Sunday, we remember that the reason he ascends to the highest place as the ruler of the cosmos is because he went to the lowest place, to death on our behalf, to rescue, to redeem all of creation. As we heard in Colossians, Paul reminds us that it was through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, both in earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The blood of the cross of Jesus Christ is the thing that reunites heaven and earth, that brings order to our chaos, that brings peace to our crisis. Jesus is the final word, the assurance that God's presence and God's power are with his people. And that is how we have hope. That is how we be people of hope and peace. The last section of this psalm goes into the future and it envisions a time where there will be an end to all chaos, all crises. Verse eight, come, it says, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns chariots with fire. It envisions this future reality when we will truly be beyond chaos and beyond crisis. A true lasting peace will be ushered in. Wars will cease to the ends of the earth, it says, not just for Israel. Israel is not the only ones that will be delivered. God's people are not the only ones that are delivered. It spreads to the ends of the earth. That is our hope. That is what we look forward to. It's very fitting, I think, that we're talking about this this Sunday because next week begins Advent, right? Which is about an expectancy and a waiting for God to come and make all things new at the end of the age. And so it should awaken in us that desire for him to come and do that. So how can we become people of peace in the midst of chaos and crisis? Just wanna draw your attention to two things. The first one we just read in verse eight, come behold the works of God. The, the, the sense of that word is not just, not just to see them, not to, to look at the works of God, but actually perceive them to understand them, to reflect on them, to meditate upon them. Think about what God has done for you. Think about what God has done for us. In history, the ways that he saved his people. Think about the stories of the Exodus for the ways that he has been near to his people to save. Think about the work of Jesus to come, to walk among us, to live, to die. And then think about the ways the Lord has revealed himself to you as powerful and present in the midst of your life. Behold the works of God. Reflect on them this week. And then finally, we didn't read these last two verses. These are very famous verses. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted. This is the, the kind of end times hope. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So be still and know. 
because I am present, because I am powerful, because I'm the king of the universe who has come among you. Be still and know. The uh, sense of that word be still is like uh, a loosening of a grip. Just let go. Loosen your grip. Loosen your attempts at control. Loosen your attempts at security. Be still. Recognize that I am the one who is with you. I'm the one who is powerful to save and all will be well. Great preacher of the early church, John Chrysostom, summarizes this well, and we'll finish with this. This then, he says, is God, everywhere mighty, everywhere exalted. This is God who takes his place with us always. Have no fear then, be not disturbed, having an invincible master as we do. This is the God, everywhere mighty. This is the God who takes his place for us. This is our God, and he is near. Amen.